I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to mini episode 267 of Real Life Ghost Stories and I have two spooky stories for you today and the last story comes from February the 8th 2023 and story number one comes from Beverly. I'm an amateur photographer who particularly likes taking pictures of people and I sometimes take advantage of location shares where a shoot organiser hires a historical or particularly beautiful venue and then offers other photographers and their models a chance to shoot there for a fee. My story takes place in two of those venues, one in the north and one in the West Midlands of England. Now this particular shoot organiser had developed a working relationship over the years with a well-known paranormal investigation team, probably one of the best known in the UK, who made and presented a long-running TV show on the subject. If I'm being a bit mysterious here, it's because both of the locations I mention were used in episodes of the programme, and those episodes may well still be in syndication somewhere but the buildings have since gone into different private and or commercial hands, and they would not welcome the attention of ghost hunters. In both cases, the paranormal TV programme makers were scheduled to film their investigations a few days before or after the photography days that I was attending. The first location was in West Yorkshire, an imposing house that dated back to Jacobean times, Grade 1 listed because of its architectural magnificence, and with a rich history that allegedly linked it to the death of a famous character, who may be real or simply exist in folklore. The grand house had been split into separate dwellings, and the shoot location was one of these, spread over three floors, with sumptuous furnishings, impressive staircases, and large windows looking out across the grounds of the private, gate-controlled estate. On this occasion, myself and three other photographers were taking turns at an evening shoot in a historic oak-panelled dining room, complete with a carved heavy stone fireplace and a genuine suit of armour. I had my usual camera and portable lighting set up and was shooting in one part of the room that had an L-shaped layout, so this part was slightly separate from the main area, and had pretty much full-length windows revealing the darkness outside. This was a cheaper-than-normal shoot, with access to just the one room rather than the whole house as would be expected at a full-priced event. So the three photography teams were shooting around each other with a bit of hanging about, and it was all very amicable, a fun, relaxed evening. Due to it being informal, I had invited, as a model, a friend and her husband, a very photogenic couple, the wife of which pairing I had photographed before. They were a bit late arriving for the 7pm start, and with it being early spring, it was pitch black outside, and I realised light reflections in the windows were something I'd definitely need to work around. 
While my friend was changing outfits, I decided to do some test shots of her husband against the wood panelling so I could see what kind of lighting I would need. That's when it got weird. Even though I knew my kit pretty well, it was studio strobe quality and I was well versed in using flash heads off camera on fold up stands. I just could not get enough light to take a decent photograph. It was like the corner of the room was simply eating light. What's more, the screen on the back of my camera, which was one often used by actual professional photographers, suddenly went haywire with a black and white blizzard of distortion where the image should be. It had never happened before and has never happened since. Moaning about my technical difficulties as I was shooting with friends and not clients, we decided to just soldier on and see if I could improve the images later in my editing suite. My female friend joined her partner and started posing, but it quickly became clear that she was not her usual vibrant self, and her listlessness showed in the photos. Apologising, she mentioned that the room made her feel very uncomfortable and that she had developed a headache and felt strangely drained of energy. She is a part-time yoga teacher and quite intuitive and sensitive and I'm convinced she was picking up on something that was not quite right with the vibes in that corner of the room. So we all looked at each other, shrugged a bit sheepishly, joked about the ghost of the folklore figure not being happy at having his final resting place flashed at and decided to chalk the session up to experience. They set off into the night glad to be leaving early and I packed up my own gear and briefly helped the other photographers working in the main part of the large room before setting off home for an early bath. A final piece of strangeness, my camera battery had been fully charged at the start of the evening. I'd put a new one in as usual and the back of the camera icon showed at 100%. And despite shooting about 20 shots all told in only 30 minutes, much, much less than a usual shoot, the battery was all but dead when I packed my camera away. Later, I found that there was a traditional grey lady ghost associated with the house, who had been seen regularly by the former aristocratic owner. And the TV team also came up with the idea that a jester had been decapitated in the basement floor and haunted that corridor. I subsequently became good friends with the shoot organiser who lived in the more humble but cosier rooms on that floor, a converted cellar, and she said the heavy door at the end of her connecting rooms was often open in the morning, even though she always shut it last thing at night before going to bed and she lived there alone. Whatever might have been haunting there, that panelled room definitely had a dodgy energy, and it turned out I wasn't the only photographer who reported equipment failure and battery drainage in that part of the location. The second location was a semi-derelict former care home in Staffordshire, with a grand late Victorian main building, and two or three separate one-floor annexes, dating from the 1950s or 60s by their design, with long corridors between what would have been residence rooms and communal dining areas. The main house was mostly structurally sound, with some stunning original features plus amazing roof access, allowing for some far-sweeping views and special photo opportunities. On the ground floor, there were some spacious former sitting rooms, shabby in a closing-down care home type of way, but with massive fireplaces, gorgeous windows and fantastic entrances. On the upper floors, there was a scattering of former client bedrooms along a warren of carpeted corridors again with dated decor that pointed to a heyday that was now long gone. 
We were told that we could shoot pretty much anywhere, including corridors to the annexes that had pretty loose windows, which were being claimed back by nature with ivy framing them on the inside. There was an exterior part of the main house that had suffered badly from water ingress and black mould bloomed up the walls. Being asthmatic, I gave that a wide berth, but some teams made great use of it as a backdrop. Unusually, the one room we were forbidden to enter was a large catering kitchen just off the entrance hall. A relatively modern-looking setup, teas, coffees and other refreshments were instead served from an urn in one of the sitting rooms, making that redundant as a shooting spot, which was a bit puzzling and disappointing. All told, there was about 12 teams of three people moving through the house and annexes, taking turns to shoot in the prime spots and doing their best to stay out of each other's backgrounds. The main house had a lovely feel, despite the edge of abandonment and decay, and the shadowy corridors and disorientating number of routes up and down staircases and along rows of former bedrooms. The annexes were another matter though, more easily recognisable as a former care facility There was still an occasional wheelchair in a doorway and small reminders that this had been the final home of many frail people. Particularly poignant was a pile of post-it notes on a table with messages of goodwill and thanks to the staff who had worked there. The main rooms were sound but the long corridors had sections where the roof had fallen in and the place had a feeling of despair and sadness despite the summer sun streaming in. One of the corridors was strangely offset as if it was part of a train that had become derailed, its front carriages left at an awkward angle. The whole place had an atmosphere of feeling slightly off, disorientating and depressing, though emotionally touching too. Anyway, we were there to take photos, so we quickly cracked on, knowing another team might be wanting their turn in there soon. Our model gamely climbed up on ivy-choked windowsills, posed under the shafts of light streaming under a collapsed section of ceiling and was altogether a jolly good sport. We got our shots and started to make our way back along the corridors to the way out. Part of the way along, I realised that I had left my silver foiled light reflector behind and so on my own I doubled back to where the corridors had the strange dislocation and into the room alongside, where I last remembered using my piece of kit. As I picked it up, something made me pause and I turned to look back at the small hallway between the corridors and at a room doorway just beyond. As I watched, there seemed to be a dark shadow that was sort of coalescing in the entrance. A shadow that, to my photographer's eye, did not make any sense, given the direction of window light. A mixed feeling of curiosity, oppression and fear shot through me, with the last one winning out and I quickly legged it back up the first corridor, through a set of dividing doors, and ridiculously glad to see my shoot partner still waiting for me at the far end. Perhaps this is not the most dramatic of strange experiences, but it was a very emotional one. I often wonder if I was sensing the last echo of some elderly person's confusion and misery, their ghost wandering the corridors looking for caregivers that had long since gone. Or perhaps it was just a trick of the light, in a highly evocative and poignant setting. To end the story, it turned out one of that day's other models got trapped alone in the annex when her photographer left ahead of her, not realising the outer doors locked and needed opening from the outside. Not liking the place, the poor young woman panicked so much 
that she smashed a pane of glass to get the attention and get herself rescued. And the catering kitchen in the main house? When the TV paranormal team had visited the week before, there had still been cook's knives on the racks until, allegedly, these were lobbed at the head of one of the main presenters by an unseen force. It was therefore decided for everyone's safety the knives should be removed and our access to the kitchen strictly barred. As a final note, the corridor where I had seen the gathering shadow also featured in the TV programme, with the abandoned wheelchair moving all by itself. So I'm not a photographer and I know nothing about photography, but I I feel like I feel really left out of these cool photography events that people are going to, like hiring these big spooky spaces and being like, okay, all other photographers in the area, you can come along and take some pictures in these big spooky places. What what a cool thing to do. And I guess, right, if you are a photographer and you have been a photographer for a very long time, you know your equipment very well. And I, I feel the same way about, you know, camera people and people who are operating any sort of technical machinery or whatever on a shoot or on a set like you know how long your battery lasts you know that you're going to get about maybe a couple of hours worth out of a particular camera or you're going to get a certain amount of shots from a particular camera so when that battery goes it's like oh that's weird and you're always prepared right you always bring extra batteries and actually that's one of the things about ghost hunting shows and that kind of crack where I feel like It's not very great TV to be like, oh, the battery drained or, oh, I can't, you know, get a good picture or whatever. But it is kind of weird. And I will admit that it intrigues me that I'm like, wonder why that happens. Why is that energy drained? And it is so interesting that, you know, you couldn't get the right light to be able to take those pictures like that corner of the building just didn't have enough light or was just consuming the light. So strange. And it's like we always say, you know, we are very intuitive creatures. So that woman being like, I don't feel good. I have a headache. I feel really strange in this space. I think you have to pay attention to do- to those feelings and those kind of gut instincts that you have about a place. And we've had so many stories over the years about care homes, whether they are in use or whether they are abandoned or whether they have been closed down whatever it is care homes are really really scary places that is a fact I'm pretty sure that's like a paranormal fact it's a scientific fact care homes are scary places when people are living in them there is all sorts of scary paranormal shit that goes on and when they are long abandoned there's all sorts of scary paranormal shit that goes on like the fact that you saw this shadow and knowing as a photographer hey that shadow should not be there and then that girl getting stuck in the room and having to break the window to get out oh that scared me and just to say beverly as an aside you have a lovely way of writing just thought i'd let you know ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And story number two comes from Alison. Now, I know a lot of listeners are in the USA, so I feel I ought to give a bit of background. The museum I'm going to tell you about is uniquely English, you see. And so were, are, the people working there. I used to help out at a fairground museum. It is located in a very rural bit of England and the building itself is modern. It's really just a big old metal warehouse, plain and a bit grim from the outside, but full of nostalgia once you get through the door. Like a great many small museums, it's run on a shoestring budget, relying on volunteers to run it and the summer tourist rush to bring in visitors. It means that the place sometimes has an air of... not neglect, that's unfair on the hard-working staff, but more of, I don't know, missed opportunity somehow. Like with a bit more time, money, publicity, it could be a bigger deal. For now... Sometimes it feels a little like a few older fellows have clubbed together and pooled their collection of memorabilia. What's different about it, though, is the exhibits. Unlike the dry, dusty museums you'd get dragged around on school trips, there is nothing static about this place. All museums seek to preserve, and here, the feel of an old-time funfair really is kept alive. There are working rides dating back to the 1800s, thrill rides from the 30s, a 1940s ghost train, an enormous set of dodgems, sumptuously decorated galloping horses, all accompanied by the sounds of the traditional fairground organ, the smells of candy floss and hot metal and fried food, the pulse of 70s disco. It's an assault on the senses. Not only working rides, but to show how the fairground show folk, I guess in the USA that's carnies, used to live, there are several living wagons. These belonged to the owners of the fair, so they're beautifully decorated tiny homes. Fussy with lace doilies, tiny range stoves, gleaming etched glass and family photos. These are a fascinating glimpse into a way of life that continues to this day. Maybe with a little more comfort, that's all. One of the volunteers, a retired lady I'll call Maggie, made a point of cleaning the interiors of the wagons weekly. She would dust carefully place a vase of flowers just so, smooth the hand-sewn counterpane on the bed and bustle out. She and her husband lived part-time on the site, as did a few of the staff, in their own modern caravans. Bill helped with the rides and Maggie would clean and help out in the hook-a-duck. Every time she'd dust one wagon though, she'd potter out with a quiet mutter of thanks. I asked her why, and it turned out she was thanking the long-since-gone family matriarch for not making a fuss. Maggie swore that once she'd committed some minor transgression, moved a vase or something silly, and the old missus had launched it out of the wagon door after her. She was careful to be respectful after that. Occasionally, we used to host evening parties. It was a great place for a grown-up birthday party. Bring your own booze, hire the place for the night, and run a barbecue or a hog roast in the yard and ride the vintage rides all evening. Sometimes we'd even get entertainers in, stilt walkers, circus performers, that sort of thing. The Dodgem cars were always non-stop on these events, and I loved to operate them. I'd let rip with the siren, 
turn the tunes up and use the microphone to wind the riders up about their lousy driving. These events would be noisy, chaotic affairs. And after we closed down, the luckier helpers would retire wearily to the caravans on site. Except on more than one occasion, people stayed overnight and would report a racket coming from the rides hall. As if the party were ongoing, long after close down. They'd be disturbed by the sounds of banging and crashing, shouts and whoops of laughter, music. But on checking, the rides were silent in the dark hall. I never felt anything nasty there. Like I said, the building itself was new and none of the rides had any kind of tragic history. It was conceivable, after all, because health and safety wasn't a huge concern before the 70s and these older rides didn't go in for seatbelts or harnesses. But no, there wasn't anything bad there. I like to think that perhaps the people that owned those rides, that got so familiar with each ride's quirks, knew their every creak and groan, well, that they loved them just like family and didn't want to leave them. It seems silly to Manny to find that attachment in a machine, but I can understand it. Also stored on the site was a tremendous fairground organ. The showman that purchased this thing way back maybe 150 years ago, he went to Italy to buy it, with the paper money sewn into his clothes. It was wildly ornate, huge and so loud it would make your ears hurt. This thing sounded like a marching band playing at full volume. Originally it would have been steam that powered the bellows, but these days it ran off a generator and the whole affair was built into a modern truck so that the truck could drive to a new place, the shutters could be opened and the organ would play. If you opened up the back door, you could see the workings, the insanely complex arrangement of pipes, bellows, drums and levers. The man that cared for it would often sleep in there, squeezed into a sleeping bag behind the organ. I asked him once about its history and he pointed to a photograph of the original owner, pinned up inside the door. He's still here, you know. I frowned at him and asked what he meant. Oh yes, I've seen him, right down the back in the shadows. I think he approves of me, you know. I just know when he's there keeping an eye on things. How lovely that he isn't creeped out by it to the point that he'll still bunk down in the back and is reassured that an extra pair of eyes is watching over this mechanical marvel. The other ride I loved to operate was the ghost train. It was an old ride and some of the effects were hokey, but that's the fun of it, right? Simple stuff like water squirting you in the face, wispy threads brushing your face, the total darkness and the fusty smell, that to me was far spookier than the overblown grotesqueries like the shrieking witch, the flying ghost and a really rather icky electric chair. Anyway, we'd open at Halloween and would get to dress up and then sneak into the back door of the ride and just drop a hand on the shoulder of the next cocky teenaged rider. Call me mean, but I delighted in frightening the ever-loving crap out of bratty kids that swore nothing could freak them out. I didn't ever venture in further than a few feet, though. Too many people had told me that the ride was haunted by something that liked to touch people or tug at clothing. God knows who or why, but it was a damn good story to tell people just as they sailed off into the depths of the ride. Watch out for the real ghosts. I think my reason for telling these stories is to point out that I don't think ghosts are about places. They're about emotions, aren't they? Ghosts aren't tied to places unless there's a damn good reason for it. 
If that's true though, what does it mean for afterlife travel? Do these ghosts just drop in on their beloved rides or homes or people, check that things are okay, then go back to wherever they came from? Does that mean that to travel as a ghost you just sort of will yourself to a place? And if that in turn is true, are the Maldives full of ghosts on permanent holidays? The museum that I'm talking about is still open if you ever want to visit it. A quick Google would tell you exactly where I'm talking about. Now Alison, I'm not sure if that last bit was meant for just me or for everybody. But I decided to share with everybody because why have I never known that this existed? This sounds so amazing. Like a museum that's full of old fairground rides that you can rent out to have parties in. Alison, you've opened my world. And I am absolutely going to be Googling this and see if I, seeing if I can visit it. And the kind of first thing to say, I suppose, is that I can totally understand that this kind of place would have, you know, haunted echoes through time, you know, like a residual haunting because they were such places of joy. They were places where people had all of this positive emotional connection to. And I love the fact that these people at nighttime, the people who stay at the site, that they are hearing the rides at nighttime, hearing screams and shouts and laughter. And obviously at nighttime, if you're trying to sleep, I'd be a bit like, okay, ghosts, <laughs> we get it. You had a nice time, but seriously, I'm trying to sleep. And for people who were part of the Showman's Guild, who lived their lives traveling around with these fairgrounds, living in wagons, this was their whole life. This was generation after generation living this life, bringing fairgrounds to different places. Everybody would have their own machines that they would be manning at the different fairground spots. I mean, these machines would have been so important to them. These wagons that they lived in would have been so important to them. And I, you know, I understand Maggie coming out of a wagon after cleaning it being like, thanks very much for being so patient. Because if a ghost was flinging a vase at me, after walking out a door, I'd be thinking, okay, I've got to be careful about where I step now. And I, I don't know if I'm naive, but I did not realise that these fairground organs were so big. And of course, it's going to end up being your life looking after it. I mean, that must be like your baby. So it's nice to know that the man who originally looked after it is kind of still around and keeping an eye on it. Oh, this story is really, like, it's, it's weird. Of course, it's weird, but it's actually really nice. I just really love a ghost train too. They're really fun and really silly. And I agree, the kind of hokier the effects, the better. But I am definitely 100% going to try and pay this place a visit. Thank you so much to Beverly and Alison for sending in your stories. Remember, the last story came from February the 8th, 2023. And if you are desperate to send in your story, you can do so by emailing it to Podcast at gmail.com. You can also check out the website Podcast.com. And if you are desperate for some extra spooky content, you can subscribe to our Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad-free. And on that note, I should See you next time. Rory and Kid here from the award-winning podcast, This Paranormal Life. Every week we investigate a paranormal story and decide if it's real or a hoax. Like the time a guy claimed he punched Bigfoot. Or when a UFO showed up at a football game in front of thousands of people. Each episode has sound effects, music, and storytelling that feels so real, you'll never sleep again. You will. Stop it. You're going to scare away new listeners. Check out This Paranormal Life every Tuesday, wherever you listen to your podcasts.